0: chapter 5, where we're going to be looking at the Sermon on the Mount. We started a new series last week um, with Pastor Gray. Today, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, but I'm also going to be drawing from Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, which is something called the Beatitudes. Let me read the passage, and then we'll get in together. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light. To all in the house. And in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. New Valley is a part of a network here in the city called the Surge Network. And it's a group of local churches that are committed to working together to undo a number of things but one of which is to train people in church in in local churches we have a something called the surge school which many of you have gone through and some of you are thinking about going through and some of you are going through right now and it's basically in some ways like seminary for everyday people it's a nine month experience and we do this around churches all over the valley and we we work together we pray together we do mission together we're praying about planting some churches together even God is doing amazing things in our city through the surge network and one of the things about the Surge Network is we brought in a speaker this last week named Zach Eswine. And you've heard me refer to him in the last year. I've, I've quoted from his book a few times called The Imperfect Pastor, which is something I can totally relate to. And it's been one of the best books on pastoral ministry I've ever read. And we at New Valley had the pleasure of hosting a breakfast this last week for fellow pastors here uh, where Zach spoke. And then we had a lunch later that day for the whole city. And Uh, for pastors in the whole city, that kind of thing, and we have these surge lunches, and Zach spoke there as well, and in both talks, what he was reminding us pastors is to shape our goals and dreams and desires for ministry in accordance with the way that Jesus defines the goals for life and ministry, and and to, to lift up those things that Jesus values instead of what the world values for ministry. Now, You would kind of think that pastors wouldn't need a reminder to like shape their ministry in the church according to what Jesus values. You would kind of hope that guys like me would already get that. And while we understand that and we know that to be true, we need a constant reminder, honestly. I need a constant reminder to not listen to the values that I'm taking in through the world and and what happens even in sometimes in the church saying this is what's important and instead have to redefine and reshape and reform the values that jesus says this is what should define a gospel church this is what should define a minister this is what should define what what is good and right and what is the good life for churches and ministry right For the next several weeks, we're going to join the disciples sitting at Jesus' feet as he called the disciples up to a mountain, and he spoke, and he preached this sermon. And many people consider the chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew to be the highest ethics of, of any teaching that's ever existed. The Sermon on the Mount. This sermon that Jesus preaches, some of you have heard this over and over and over, and and I'm pleading with us, those of us that maybe you grew up in church or or you were in Sunday school and you've spent your life in church and in the Bible, I'm pleading with you to give fresh ears to Jesus' words in this sermon, to join these disciples coming up to the mountain, sitting at his feet, and trying to listen with fresh ears to what he may say to us. And what he's going to say will be difficult to hear. He is going to call us to redefine our lives according to his will, his purposes, and his kingdom, but it will not be easy. And so there's an implicit warning there. This is hard. Jesus is basically inviting us, and he's saying, let me share with you what I value and what is important in my coming kingdom. Now, Matthew is the writer of this gospel. He's the one that has uh, traditionally been known as the author of this gospel. And for Matthew, it's super important that we understand a couple things. And one of them is this, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament story. That Jesus is the culmination and the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He is a son of David. He is the greater Abraham. And he wants us to also to see that he is the greater Moses. He is the fulfillment of all that has come. He also, this is a very important theme to Matthew and, of course, Jesus, is the idea of the kingdom of God. Jesus is proclaiming the presence of the kingdom of God with his physical reality on the earth. As Jesus is now on the earth, Jesus is saying the kingdom of God has arrived. And now Jesus pulls away from the, mount, or from the crowds and, from, and calling these crowds and disciples up to the mountain and he's going to say, let me describe to you what life in my kingdom is like. Let me share with you what the kingdom of God is like and let me share with you the attributes and the values and the things that I, as God, define reality as and I'm inviting you then, he's saying to us, to contrast that with the kingdoms of this world. I'm inviting you would-be disciples of of mine to to contrast what I'm calling you to with the kingdoms of this world, which are bent and they're broken, and if we're honest, largely selfish. And so as we spend the next several weeks looking at marriage and how we should treat our enemies and the issues of forgiveness and, and the issues of, divorce, and, and all these other very, very practical issues, Jesus is going to say, would you please, as my followers, define your life according to what I value? And today we're going to see two things, a disciple's character and a disciple's influence, a disciple's character and a disciple's influence. And rather than saying a disciple, I'd like to say us as the disciples of Jesus, the disciple's influence and a disciple's character. First, the character. Jesus calls his followers up to the mountain, and it's interesting, in the beginning of chapter 5, he says the disciples came up, and by the end of chapter 7, it says that the whole crowd had uh, been gathering around Jesus as well. Jesus takes his followers to a mount for teaching and shares with them what life in the kingdom is like and compared to the kingdom of this world, and he begins his sermon, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, with what is traditionally called the Beatitudes. In Latin, this means beatus, meaning happy or blessed. What is the good life? What is the blessed life? What what does God consider the blessed life? And in that section, Jesus gives a list of attributes of the people he considers blessed, happy, the type of people who get it right, And who's in this list? Perhaps you were here last week when Pastor Gray preached on this. The poor in spirit are blessed because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In the other gospel writers, it says the poor. Those who mourn are blessed. They shall be comforted. The meek are blessed. They will inherit the earth. The merciful are blessed. Why? They will receive mercy. The pure in heart are blessed. They will see God. The peacemakers are blessed. They will see the kingdom of God, and the son, or they will be called sons of God. The persecuted are blessed. Theirs is the kingdom of God. What would we make of this list of people What would we say about a group of people like this? Our kingdom, the kingdom of the United States, the kingdom that is our culture, the kingdom of Phoenix, the the kingdom that we live and move and have our being in, what would we say about people such as these? The poor, the depressed, (laughs) the mournful, the meek, the persecuted those are the type of people we'd say, let's put them on our prayer list. I mean, and we have a prayer list, by the way. If if you need to be on it, we have a team of people that pray daily for the needs of this body. We would say, they're poor, they're persecuted, they're, they're, they're going through trial and tribulation. These people are cursed. Pray for them, help them, give your life towards them, but Jesus says, they're blessed. Confounding. The kingdom of God is not not exactly the way I'd conceived of it: poor, persecuted, mournful, merciful, etc. If we created a list of attributes, <laughs> if somehow Google could put together a, a, a beatitudes of our culture, what, what would we say about who's blessed in our society? If we, collectively as a society, could, could say like, "These are the blessed people among us. Blessed are the popular and the famous." and the celebrities, for theirs is the kingdom of Instagram and Snapchat. (laughs) Blessed are the pretty and the handsome and the beautiful, for theirs is the kingdom of adoration and praise. Blessed are the rich and the powerful. Theirs is the kingdom of Wall Street and Washington, D.C. and Manhattan. What would we say? Who are blessed? Actually, truly blessed. Jesus says, follow me sit at my feet, listen, listen to my words. What would it take for you to have a general sense of well-being and blessedness? I mean, really. What would it take for you to be able to take stock of your life and go, I am blessed. And and not in some superficial, syrupy, sappy, spiritual way, but like literally be able to believe and mean it when you say in an authentic way, I am among the blessed people. I am blessed. I I am living the good life. What would it take? For you to be able to live with that, to be able to say, this is true of me. I can live in that. And obviously that's a complicated question. And it's going to, depend on who you are who who answers that we would all probably answer that in a variety of ways age age will factor greatly on how you answer that what is the good life how would you determine the blessing is right well a 16 year old is going to define that much differently than a 5 year old we know that and a 16 year old is going to define it much differently than a 75 year old what is the blessed life Wh- when would i be blessed Pastor Gray mentioned last week just how different like four and five-year-olds are at Christmas. Like we were talking about how parents, you know, conspire to give a blessed Christmas and and they, mainly grandparents, pour out hundreds of dollars on young little kids on th- giving them the blessing of Christmas, right? And, and then you stop and ask a two-year-old and a three-year-old and a five-year-old like, what was your favorite gift? You know, it's like... It was the box, right? That came with the blessed $100 gift. They played in the box or, or it was a coloring book or something small. A five-year-old is going to answer the question much differently than a 16-year-old and a 75-year-old is going to answer the question much differently than a 16-year-old. But what is the blessed life? Will money make you blessed? There's a nuance to that question if you think about it and it's not so simple to answer. Are, 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 Our knee-jerk reaction is to say, no, of course not. We're in church. We have to say, no, money will not bless you. But research has shown there's a a well-known study that there is a certain amount of money that actually will bless you. If you are going without your daily needs, if you're scrounging for every meal and you can't put two nickels together, you can't find food to eat or shelter for your family, there is an amount of money that will bless you and it's the amount of money that provides what you need to live maybe slightly more, so that you live with a little bit of room to breathe, so that you're not in debt. And what research has shown, if you have enough money to have your needs met, it actually can give you an amount of happiness. But beyond that, what happens, and by the way, it's actually not that much money. Beyond that, what happens is We just get used to what we have and then we adjust our expectations and our lifestyle to meet whatever we're making and it just adds to our stress and our strain. Will money make you happy? Maybe if you have nothing. But beyond that, no. Is it influence? Is it power? Is it popularity? Physical beauty? Many of us think so. Is that what opens up the door to the good life? Popularity, Instagram followers, physical beauty, everyone adoring you and just thinking you're amazing? Is it rewarding work or having a, a great family? If you have no children and you want kids, like, is that it? And the answer is maybe, to some degree. If you're single and lonely and you want to be married, yes, perhaps that could add to the good life and, and be a blessing to you, but the reality is, all these good gifts, all these circumstantial good gifts that come to us can be taken away in an instance. These good gifts, these circumstances can come and go. Is there a blessed life that sort of supersedes circumstances? Is there a blessing that goes beyond all these little details? And Jesus is coming along saying, the blessed life is found in me and my kingdom. For those who would have ears to hear the blessed life, there is a blessed life, but it's not what you think it is. And it's going to be more challenging than you think it is, but there is a blessed life found in me as king and the kingdom of God. Next, a disciple's influence, salt and light. Salt and light. Large crowds were gathering because Jesus was healing people. And now he's gone up to the mountain to teach his disciples. The crowds have also come. And I want you to think for a minute, who is in this group of people that has gathered around to hear Jesus teach? It's an interesting group. And we don't know among the crowds who was there, but we certainly know among the 12 who came and sat at Jesus' feet. For example, there are fishermen that are there. And, and the closest thing I can relate to in that is, like, I watch Deadliest Catch on cable television. I mean, that's an interesting show to me. My family thinks I'm insane for watching it. It's the same every season. It's the same drama, same story. There's just something about it, like, to me that I find fascinating. These, these rough, hardened men out putting their lives at risk to catch crab. There are fishermen. There's a tax collector. He wrote the book we're reading, this gospel. name's Matthew. At this time, Israel is an occupied territory. They were their own sovereign nation. They were invaded by the Roman Empire by force, threatened with the pains of death, and probably at war with one another. Rome, of course, wins. They come in. They have conquered them, and there are two opposing kingdoms there. There's the Roman Empire that's actually in control. There's a a, a subset government, the, the Jewish government, that really has very little power over the Roman Empire, but they are coexisting. And meanwhile, you have a few people that have totally compromised and sold out their own people because they're Jewish folks working for this occupying force that in everybody's mind is evil. Matthew's one of those guys. Matthew has sold out his own people, he's a tax collector, and what that means, he would go and like sit at a bridge and charge his own people, his Jewish brothers and sisters, if they would cross the bridge, they'd say, hey, it costs 10 bucks to cross the bridge for the Roman Empire, and it's going to cost you two more dollars to pay me. So he's extorting money from his own people to pay Rome, who everybody hates. Matthew is among the most despised people on the planet. He is considered the scum of the earth by his own people, and to some degree, rightfully so. In this group, there's also a zealot. (laughs) Zealots are the people who are going, I'm not cool with Rome coming in here and, and doing what they've done. I would rather die than sit under their thumb of their power. Let's take up arms against our oppressors, let's kick them out, let's wage war against them, and they're ready to do it. There is a zealot among the group as well. So if you're Matthew camping out with Jesus and these other 12, you better have one eye open because there's a dude with a knife and he's ready to stab you. These are the kind of people that have gathered, these are the kind of people that are actually following Jesus that he points his heart and his life towards and he says, you, my friends, you, you zealots, who's like a militia member that's gathered down in Tucson, you know, with his gun and his fake badge and patrolling, you know, the, the border with his band of militiamen. You, you tax collectors, you big government liberal, you know, uh, big government solves all the problems like Matthew. You're, you're in the same cr- crowd, you're in the same group with me. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world you weird, dysfunctional group of 12 that I've brought to me. You are the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. And if you ever think to yourself, like, I don't know if I fit the persona or the type of person that follows Jesus. If you've got whatever perceptions you have in mind, would you please study the disciples? They're not probably what you think. Saint Matthew, Saint Peter, the deadliest catch guy. These are the ones that are called salt and light, and Jesus is using this household metaphor that they can all understand completely, because they all have salt in their home, and they all have light in their home. We, of course, have salt. I have like eight or nine different types of salt now. Morton's used to be fine, right? I mean, they're a little blue, but now I have Morton's for everyday common salt usage, but then there's kosher salt, and there's sea salt, and there's flavored salt and there's all this different and then people come over like to make appetizers at our house or we're throwing a party, and they leave it so literally our cupboard we have like a whole salt section of our seasoning <laughs> area so i can relate to salt and so can you and light they had little lamps burning by oil that would light their homes and in order to light a room in the evening what would you do you would put it he said jesus even mentions you don't put it low you don't put a basket over it you lift it up and you put it in the corner of a room to illuminate the whole room light these are household metaphors that everyone go yeah yeah i get it now the problem though with us church folk is you've heard it so many times and i'm I, i'm like a prophet that can see into your past i know that i know the future and i know the past like and here's the thing some of you grew up in youth groups that were called salt and light Some of you sang in choirs called salt and light. Some of you grew up in church singing this little light of mine. Like you've heard this sermon taught by so many people and you just roll your eyes and go, yeah, yeah, salt and light. I know salt's a preservative. We're supposed to preserve culture and light to the world. We're supposed to be kind and love people and so forth, blah, blah, blah. But I'm pleading with you, especially if you're, if you're a new follower of Jesus or you're just considering it, like these words may be fresh to you. But those of you who've walked with God for a while and have heard this, please, would you hear again with fresh ears and listen to what he's actually saying. He literally tells them, you're the salt of the world. But there is a warning here that if they cease to be flavorful as salt is meant to be, and he doesn't mention the preservative effect. Instead, he talks about flavor. If salt loses its saltiness or flavor, what good is it? It's thrown on the ground. It's trampled. He says, you're the light of the world. It's impossible to imagine a city that's being illuminated on a hill could be hidden. He says, it's just not possible. You don't take light in your house and hide it. You lift it up. And so what he's saying is this, friends, we are called to be light and salt. But the reality is, This is right on the heels of him describing the type of people who are blessed. We have a tendency to take one or two verses out of context and read it individually apart from what came before or what comes after. But let's put this right in in the place where Jesus said this in a sermon that that he didn't pause over two verses and stop. He's just said, blessed are these people. You're the salt of the earth and if you lose your saltiness, what good are you? So what he's saying is this, friends, New Valley. If we cease to be poor in spirit, we've lost our saltiness. If we cease to be pure in heart or to cease to hunger and thirst after righteousness, then we're we're less salty. We don't taste as good anymore. If you cease to be meek, which is humility, or merciful, the type of people who can forgive their enemy, then you're not being salty anymore. You're not being, you don't taste good to anyone and, and you're no good to yourself or to anybody else. This is what Jesus is saying. What's interesting, he talks about salt losing its taste, but chemists say that sodium chloride actually is one of the most stable compounds that exist. So it's not like salt has a tendency to become less salty, but instead what happens is it gets mixed with other things and becomes less pure. It gets mixed with dirt or sand or some poison or or whatever. And it can become bad because it takes on the flavor of the thing it's been mixed with. And Jesus, you know what he's saying here. He's saying, the the kingdom of God is like good salt that flavors the world. Don't mix it with the kingdom of the world, which is of no use to anyone. Full of selfishness and pride and arrogance, and it's no good in my kingdom. John Stott, a great pastor who's gone on to be with the Lord, says this For effectiveness, for effectiveness, Christians must maintain Christ likeness, as salt must retain its saltness. The influence of Christians in and on society depends on them being distinct, not identical. We're known for being distinct, though, into our culture. What are we known for? When people say, Oh, you're a Christian, like a, a real one that goes to church all the time and stuff, what are they going to assume about you? I, I'm serious, class. What? Judgmental? What else? Self righteous? Bob's on a roll? What else? <laughs> Any others? Yeah. Hypocritical. Those are the three I think of. Oh, you're a Christian. You're self-righteous. Is that the gospel? I have so much righteousness, it's all about me and my righteousness? No, the gospel is Jesus is righteous. He's given me his righteous. The, the gospel is I'm broken, fallen, and sinful. I deserve death, but instead Jesus didn't give me what I deserved. He gave me the gift of his love and forgiveness and righteousness, and yet I'm being known as being self-righteous? Does that make any sense for the people of God? Church, may that never be. We're known for being judgmental. Guess what? Jesus is going to teach us in the Sermon on the Mount. Judge not, lest you be what? But that's what we're known for. That's our distinctive flavor hypocrisy. (laughs) Do not pray like the hypocrites pray, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Instead, what? Do it in hiddenness. Pray, don't do your do good deeds before men so that they may think you're, but, but he does say, do your do good, good deeds in such a way that people are drawn to Jesus. See, there's, too, there's a type of salt, you guys, that's no good. It's when you use too much salt. My father-in-law is the king of too much salt, and he's suffering for it now. He'll take the saltiest food you can imagine, and he'll take out that Morton's salt shaker and just, dad, You know, dude, stop! Please, he's you know he's like 80s. How old is he? 86? He's old. He's made it. He did it. (laughs) He's he did it. He persevered. Like go for it, man. (laughs) But to me, that ruins food. Too much salt. Light. Light's wonderful if it's doing what it's supposed to do, which is illuminate. But you can take a flashlight, like these new LED lights, and put it in somebody's eye, and it'll destroy your eyes. And you just you you want to get away. What many people are saying is your saltiness is over, it's not a flavor that draws me, it, it's disgusting, it's ruined, it's ruined it. And your light is so bright that it doesn't feel like a warm illumination that draws me into a room that I want to be a part of, instead it's, it's like the bright white hot light of judgment. That's not what we're called to. In Matthew 5, verse 16, Jesus says this, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your what? Your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. And I've got a question I want you to chew on. What kind of good works would cause people to be so thankful for you and for me and for the church? that they may glorify God because of us. What type of good works could cause people in our culture, in our day, in our age, to be so thankful for the body of Christ in Phoenix, the body of Christ in Tempe, and Ahwatukee, and Chandler, and Mesa, and Gilbert, that people go, I'm actually really thankful for these people. I may not even share their faith, but I'm thankful for them. I'm interested because every time I get near them, they taste different than I thought. You know, I was expecting judgment. I was expecting hypocrisy, but they throw the best parties. They're the most hospitable people I've ever met. They're the most merciful people. They're not filled with self-righteousness and pride. In fact, they're meek. They're mild. They're humble. What type of people must we be in order to draw people by our good works? What kind of good works would be done so that people go, Ah, that's the God I want to glorify. Some takeaways. The point is not simply to follow the ethics of Jesus. It's to follow Jesus. The point of this sermon is not to simply understand this ethics as if like it's just some body of knowledge. Instead, it's to know Jesus and to be known by him, to know the King of Kings, to know the Lord of Lords, and, and to, for him to know you. And out of that knowledge, you know, in a healthy marriage, for example, you rub each other wrong, but if you really love one another, you, you want to please one another. When you really love someone, if you're a good friend, good roommate, good ho- husband, good wife, you. you You know there's often conflict, but you want to please them, and so you do everything you can to please them. Jesus is saying, this is my will for you, but this is also my gift to you. I want to bless you. This is the blessed life. You think it's by defining sex this way, but I'm telling you it's this. You think it's defining marriage this way, but I'm telling you it's this. You think it's by living your life full of worry and anxiety, but I'm telling you it's this. Finally, We have been blessed to be a blessing. We're called to be salt and light to people. This blessing, Jesus is saying, I want to share with you the blessed life. I want to give you the blessed life, but it's in order to be a blessing. We're not called to be a blessing and that be the end result. We are being the gift of being a blessing according to Jesus' teaching and words in order that we, because he's the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, like Abraham was blessed to be a blessing, so too are we Blessed to be a blessing. And so, church, New Valley, who are you called to bless? Not in some general sense. I want names. (laughs) I want addresses. I want phone numbers. Who are you called to bless? Who are you salt to? Savory. Tasty. Delicious. Who are you light to? Not a blinding light, a warm, warm light. Drawing people in. Who's gonna point to you someday in the kingdom of heaven and say, I thank God for them. It was their saltiness, it was their, it was their savoriness, it was their light, their warm light that drew me to the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, as we gather now at your table, and give thanks, this table of thanksgiving. Lord, we're so convicted at your words, and we're so overcome by a sense of like, how can we possibly live the ethics that you're gonna teach us in this sermon? And while with man it's impossible, with you all things are possible. And I pray for New Valley and for every faithful church in this city that we may increasingly shine the type of good works in this city that people may stop and give glory to you. And we know that there are some that will never have a good palate for good food, and there, there are some that will always flee the light because they love darkness. But we also have the hope that your spirit is at work in this world and that you draw men and women to yourself. And so, Lord, use us by your grace and mercy to have influence that is humble, and merciful, and meek, filled with goodness and light. We ask this in Jesus' good name. Amen.